This podcast is not intended to be an investigative report, and all opinions stated herein are opinions strictly from the hosts and are not affiliated with any law enforcement entity. This is a true crime podcast and may contain information that may be disturbing to some listeners. Audience discretion is advised. Welcome to Vintage Homicide, a true crime podcast being presented to you by two forensic scientists with a passion for the vintage lifestyle. We are your hosts, Ms. Ruby Wild and Ms. Mayday. We will bring you historic murders with special insight into the era and the forensics involved to look back at what crime solving may have been like. This podcast is benefiting the 501c3 Bombshell Betty's Calendar for Charity, which is a nonprofit whose mission is to raise support and awareness for veterans' charities through community involvement, photography, and pinups. This is the tale about a family that murders together, stays together, until they don't. This is all about the bloody benders. From 1872 to 1873 in Labette County, Kansas, which is along the Osage Trail, they owned and operated a wayside inn. So, Mayday, you have a bunch of information about the Osage Trail, right? Yeah, I actually uh, read a book. There is a book called Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI, written by David Gran. Um, It basically details essentially the documentation of this period of time post the American Civil War, where the U.S. government removed the Osage Indians from Labette County, Kansas, to a new Indian territory in basically Oklahoma. And at this time, um, this was happening because of a series of homestead acts. So the Homestead Act of 1862 basically opened up millions of acres for any adult who had never taken up arms against the federal government of the United States. So essentially, if you didn't fight in the South for the Confederacy, you could basically apply. And at this time, it was estimated that about 1.6 million homesteaders became new Americans in the Western United States because of the Homestead Acts. And in order to be a homesteader, you just had to be a head of a household and at least 21 years old. And basically, you would live on that land, build a home, make improvements, and farm upon it for a minimum of five years. And all there was was a filing fee of $18. And then you would get this land that the American government just basically gave you. So at this time, the Benders were essentially a family that um, became homesteaders and uh, resided in um, Labette County because of this uh, Homestead Act. So that's exactly how the Benders were able to purchase this property. In October of 1870, they got a large plot of land, built their cabin, and what they did with this cabin is they made the front of the cabin like a general store um, slash kind of wayside, like uh, where people can stay during their journeys, and then the back of the cabin is where they actually resided, and that's where all their beds were, and it was separated by a sheet, like just one sheet that kind of ran along the center. Kind of like if you have two sisters sharing a room, you're going to put a curtain between the two. That's what this was. So here's the family of the Benders. We have John Sr., who was in his 60s. It was thought that he spoke a little English. And Ma Bender, who was in her 40s, she also was thought to speak a little English. And she was also known to be highly unpleasant. Their son, John Jr., was in his 20s, and Kate, the daughter, was in her 20s. 
Kate has an interesting story all of her own. She was seen to be a comely woman who would perform healing and seances. So when we say like healing and seances, what are we saying in real life? In the late 19th and early 20th century, spiritualism, basically the belief that spirits of the dead can communicate through the living, was very posh. It was all the rage. And so it was very popular to hold a seance led by a medium. Kate was um, basically self-proclaimed to be a medium. And so she would essentially hold the interest for all of these travelers who were basically coming through her family's in um, to buy supplies on their way, you know, to um, building their own homesteads, or if they were staying uh, with them, um, she would hold these seances where she would basically communicate to the dead, their dearly departed, or like pretend to have psychic healing. And so she would heal them of whatever ailments they had. And so essentially what she was doing was preying on people's vulnerability, sadness, and desperation to manipulate them for financial gain. So that was just one of the many ways that they were able to get, we'll call them customers, into the store. And the town believed this family to be German immigrants, but only the men were the immigrants. They don't know if they came from Germany. They could have come from Holland because uh, nobody else spoke their language. They just knew that it was some form of Germanic-sounding thing. Ma Bender has a history of her own. She was born in the Adirondack Mountains. She was previously married and had a total of 12 children. Kate was her fifth child and the only one that she stayed with. Her previous husbands, plural, had all previously died from head injuries. So she never was convicted of any of this stuff. She got multiple guys convinced to marry her and she had 12 children. So this technically makes John Jr. and Kate not biologically brother-sister and some neighbors thought that they were incestuously close if they were related. We'll put it that way. So they could have even been married themselves. So now we're going to get into when things just start escalating. In 1871, a man was found with a crushed skull and a throat cut found in Drum Creek. In February of 1872, two more men were found with the same exact injuries in a very close location. In the winter of 1872, a neighbor and his daughter of the Bender family were alleged to resettle in Iowa after the death of the mother of the situation. They were never seen again, but they were known to have been traveling along the Osage Trail just to be able to get to their new location. And then furthermore, in the spring of 1873, another neighbor, Dr. York, went to look for this father and daughter because he was friends with them and he was like, what happened? I'd know the path and I've never heard from them again. So he went along the trail and he also was never seen again. So at this point, what people may not have known is Dr. York was highly connected. So in March of 1873, one of Dr. York's brothers had a search party. So you know the Dr. York's brother. What was he again? Yeah, so Dr. York, his brother, his name was Edward, and Edward basically led the search team for his brother. And it was because he became really suspicious of the homestead that the Benders lived at because that was the last place he had heard from or anybody had reported seeing his brother. 
So you've got this important guy now leading a search for a very important man. And in 1873, there were numerous reports of missing people that had traveled through the area. So now travelers are starting to avoid this area, and it just became dangerous. However, it's kind of like a blanketed statement to say it's dangerous. There were bandits, there were accidents, there were conflicts with Native Americans, and there was also disease. So just because somebody went missing couldn't necessarily be associated with this family. And that's the problem that Edward was having, trying to convince people, nah, it's really this thing. So at this point, the community gathered to discuss what to do about these missing travelers because they're starting to affect business. Like I said, other travelers are now starting to avoid the area. The mailbenders, the Johns, were present at this town hall meeting, which was at a local schoolhouse. The community unified and decided that a search warrant was granted for all homesteads that were along the Osage Trail. But due to bad weather, the search couldn't start immediately. So once the search did start, uh, it was discovered that the Bender family was no longer in their home. So a neighbor during like this whole searching started noticing the starving farm animals on the Bender land. And that's when they were like, hey, they're gone. Why did they leave? So they decided to search this house exclusively, really diligently, and they noticed that the benders took their wagon, clothes, and food and left everything else behind, so they left in a very big hurry. The neighbors at this point found a trap door in the floor of the inn that was beneath uh, right where the dining table would have been. It was a six-foot by seven-foot by three-foot room, and it had been nailed shut, and when they opened it, they had a foul smell. So when they went down there, they found this door area to be drenched in blood, and they scoured it trying to look for the bodies, but no bodies were found. So they decided, because of the way that this house was built, um, do you want to elaborate on how houses were built then? They were small homestead houses, so essentially it was a very, very small one-room house. And like you said before, the house had just been divided using most likely canvas that was used for wagon covering. It's literally just a square box, this little square box that's on a um, foundation that's over the earth. And this cellar, uh, which is what this trap door led into, was basically just a hollowed out area underneath the foundation of the house. So essentially, they were able to pick up the house off of its frame and move it away from this uh, cellar area to further investigate and look into the cellar, which is where they were essentially looking for bodies at that point. So though it smelled, though it was drenched in blood, though it was a trapdoor that led from this inn, they still found no bodies. So they had no clue at this point the extent of anything that may have happened. At this point, they started sprawling out a little bit more, and they saw that the vegetable garden had, it looked like maybe fresh tilled soil. And this, I'm also going to have Mayday explain a little bit more, because I'm sure that they didn't do this back in the day for excavations, but currently we do have processes for excavations in the forensic world. And I just want to drop a little bit of knowledge on you here. 
So, yeah, it was observed at the time that there was like an orchard adjacent to this house, and uh, there was these depressions in the soil. And modernly, what would be done is if it was suspected that there was bodies that were buried recently, um, you would basically gently probe the soil to see if there is any soft depression. So if there's any give in the soil, that kind of indicates a recent um, dug grave. And so at this time, they just noticed that it was recently tilled. So uh, they started digging in those areas. Now it would be a long process where you're essentially carefully removing the soil, looking for the true grave dimensions, and you would take layer by layer off, sieve it separately, um, looking for any sort of evidence. And this could be remnants of clothing or objects that belong to the victim or even um, bones, bone fragments. And then as you dig, you would dig very carefully and cautiously down um, layer by layer, like at a couple inches at a time, trying to see if you can uncover any bodies. So at this time, I'm sure they didn't have like a formal way of doing a body excavation, but essentially this is what the search party was doing um, at the point where they discovered that there was this freshly toiled um, soil and depressions in the soil. So they started an excavation And lo and behold, what did they find? They found, oddly enough, the very first body that was uncovered was that of Dr. York. Uh, He was found the same as those previous three male victims uh, in the area from 1871 through 1872. The back of his head has been crushed. His throat has been slit. Uh, So they decided to keep going. And they wanted to see how many more victims there may, may possibly be. Because this is the 1800s, the total number of bodies is very unclear, but the consensus is that it's somewhere between 8 and 11 with all the same injuries aside from a young girl. Trigger warning alert. Here's some, like, child killer information. The little girl that happened to be traveling with the neighbor whose mother just died, there was a girl that may possibly have been buried alive, and she had multiple injuries that would not have caused death. So rather than killing her in the same method, which was quickly, for some reason, she was killed very slowly. Um, they're or they, all, or they just didn't know that she wasn't dead when they threw her into the grave with her father, essentially. And that's exactly it. I mean, when you have two people like that, chances are one may fight back, or you've gotten into such a habit of killing grown men that you don't quite know what to do with a child. But oddly enough to note, there also is documents that state that there were dismembered body parts, which is why the final consensus of the body count has been unclear, because unless we're Frankenstein, we can't put the bodies back together again. So after the discovery of the bodies, they decided to try and figure out how these people were killed. And here we get into the modus. So the people that would come to the inn and they would be guests and they would be seated at the dining table with their back to this canvas that had been uh, separating the room. One of the men would go to the other side of the canvas and while the men were eating, they would hit the guest in the head with a hammer. The guest would then be dropped through the trap door. Eventually, one of the women would go down, slit their throat to ensure that they had died, and then they would strip them down and rob them. So the main motive seemed to be just completely theft. 
So they were able to put all that together. I'm still not sure how because that wasn't very well documented, but I'm sure that it was the only systematic way that this could have happened. And it really does explain the amount and smell and copious amount of blood that happened to be in that trap room. So... The, like the news of this started going out and people just started traveling to the Bender homestead far and wide. And they started getting these, let's say, morbid souvenirs, which basically they just started pulling the house apart little by little to take their little pieces of the house with them. And this just starts destroying evidence and contaminating crime scenes. And eventually you no longer can put your story back together because it doesn't exist anymore. So now they know that the Benders are definitely guilty of homicides, multiple homicides. So they put a $3,000 in 1873, $3,000 cumulative reward offered for the arrest of the Bender family. Nobody ever claimed the reward. A lot of vigilante groups decided to go out. They did a bunch of false arrests and uh, what else would you call that? Like a provoked interrogation? Maybe? Yeah. Something like that. (laughs) So it caused a lot of people to be taken into custody that were not part of the Bender family. But here's the crux of it all. So remember how I said that the two Johns are not related to either Ma Bender or Kate, correct? Right. That is because nobody in the family was using their real names or was actually related. So after they start digging into the Bender family, they realize that... They all were not actually named Bender. So Kate Bender was Eliza Griffith. Ma Bender was Elmira Meek, M-E-I-K. Her first husband was Griffith, which is where Kate got her name, which is now Eliza. Let's get a little bit more confusing here because John Sr. was John Flickinger and John Jr. was John Gebhardt. So the Johns actually kept their first name, but that's about it. So wait, are you telling me that they possibly were not a family at all? Just a group of people who banded together to commit these horrendous crimes? All but I'm Elmira and Eliza. Those two were definitely mother-daughter, but that is it. It's not even sure if even Ma and Pa Bender were married. Nobody knows. Now, here's where stories start splitting, and it's because they were never found. We can only go off of hearsay. So vigilante justice may have happened to the Benders, and they may never have left the area because if you kill somebody, why would you try and claim a reward if you've just murdered them? Another tale is that the family split up with Kate and John headed to Texas, New Mexico, and John Sr. and Ma last seen in Kansas City buying train tickets to St. Louis. And that's pretty much where the story lands. Currently, nothing remains to indicate the exact location of this homestead. But there is a historical marker at a rest area that's pretty close to this uh, former homestead. It's at the junction of U.S. Highway 169 and 400 in northeast Labette County, Kansas. Oh, interesting. So something to do whenever you're traveling through Kansas. Yes, it is something to do in Kansas. Homicide is produced by J.H. Cabral. 
Additional editing and theme music produced by Matt Beck. A special thanks to Bonnie Navarro Photography and Bombshell Betty's Calendar. Please visit bombshellbettyscalendars.com for more information. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Vintage Homicide Podcast. Please subscribe wherever you prefer to download your podcasts and join us next time for more tantalizing tales of murder and mystery.